Hello, and welcome to Code Convos. Uh, I'm joined today with my guest, Eric Pedersen, who is a pillar, I believe, in the Southern Utah community and someone that I've looked up to for a really long time. Um, he is He has tons of accolades, but I think some of the most important ones are that he is the Dean for the College of Science, Engineering, and Technology at Utah Tech University here in Southern Utah. Uh, he has a PhD of Management uh, Information Systems. Um, he's the founder and owner of multiple successful businesses uh, that we'll get into later. And he's also an incredible mentor for me and many other students who want to take their career seriously. And so I'm very excited to have Eric on the podcast today. Thanks for coming, Eric. Hey, thank you for having me. <laughs> so uh, just to get started, um, I'd really like the listeners to kind of get to know you a little bit better, Eric, and just your history and some of the you know, pretty incredible things that you've been able to accomplish throughout your career. Uh, do you think that you could just give us maybe a high-level overview of some of the you know, big accomplishments, maybe businesses or uh, different roles that you've had at different companies and approximate time frames of those? Sure. Um, but before I jump into the companies, maybe maybe I'll speak to... My, my role here at uh, Utah Tech University. That'd be great. So I started uh, back in 89, so I've been here quite a, quite a while. Um, and back then there wasn't much technology at all in Southern Utah, so the context of new businesses really came from uh, this environment in Southern Utah where there was very little. Uh, I think back in 89 there was probably Strata 3D, a little 3D you know, modeling and rendering company. Uh, there was Ram Company, uh, aerospace engineering firm, and I think Everex, and there and there were probably a smattering of little mom and pop shop in the tech and engineering space. But it was it was really pretty limited. Uh, not very many employees. Not very much happening in that industry or sector. And so when I got here, I'm, I was I was you know I came from Northern Utah, and there was lots of activity up there. You know, it seemed like every other weekend some spin-off company was doing something big and you know impacting the world or at least impacting the region and so so when I came down here I, I thought gosh we could we could do a lot more in in tech and I remember the first semester I was here teaching you know a, a computing class and and thinking wow we could do a lot lot more here in terms of developing talent and the kind of courses that we teach and so it, it was a pretty fertile playing ground in, in the early days. And, and shortly after that, uh, uh, as I started at the university, I wrote a grant, uh, a research grant, that was for, you know, the, it was for doing some private-public partnerships and developing some technology. And uh, we, we kind of kicked in with some of that. And from that grant, a number of companies spun off from the university and we started to see a, a growth in that. Uh, and, and then shortly after that, uh, this little thing called the internet started to become a thing. Um, we started to see uh, <laughs> uh, HTTP demons, and, your, and some of your users might not know what that is, but those are the early stage Apache web servers uh, that were kind of kicking around the world. There weren't very many of them. And, I had a student come to me, Aaron Gifford, uh, and he says, "Hey, have you seen this new, you know, this new HTTP demon?" I'm like, "No, I haven't seen it." And he showed it to me, and he says, uh, "Do you have some, you know, do you have some machines that we can launch some of these web services on?" So I started working with some other groups and acquired enough equipment that we could launch and set up some of these web servers. And and that student and I uh, worked on the first website in Utah. And launched that, so that was a that was a really fun, kind of an exciting time, and and we and we started to see what you know the World Wide Web in those early days was going to look like. And back then, I, I remember um, I remember you could you could learn everything you needed to know about internet development in about four hours, <laughs> maybe <laughs> maybe four hours, uh, because I mean it was it was HTML and and you're just following a, you know, the, the W3 standard back then. And, and we literally were just putting up you know, hypertext links and text and text colors. And there was no CSS. There was no JavaScript. There was no dev beyond that, which you know, we spend a lot of time with our students now. And, and so off we go, and we start launching some of those. And, and we started to recognize, gosh, this is, 
gonna be a big, this is gonna be a game changer. And, and I remember inviting a number of local companies in. I'm not gonna say their names because I, I wouldn't want to make any of them feel uncomfortable, but uh, we had about 25 companies come to a lunch that I hosted and we wanted to show them what this new internet thing was and how to, how to use it and, and kind of what, what we see as transformational to the world of business and, and these new domains and what are domains and, and all that fun stuff. And about half of them that we invited to that lunch said, oh, that's just a fad. It won't, it, it's not going anywhere. And, and I remember kind of being taken back by that, like, gosh, they don't see what we're seeing and what I see. And it, and it surprised me. I was like, all right, well, what do I think? And I says, I don't care what the naysayers think, and let's, let's go. And uh, you know, shortly after that, uh, I founded a little company called InfoWest. And that, you know, that's been running for 30 plus years and uh, founded a num number of other little companies that spun off of that. What we, what we figured out early is there was, there was kind of two ways you could play the internet thing. You could either control the infrastructure, which was what InfoWest did, and, or you could control what traveled on the infrastructure, which is what a number of my other companies did because we could see that, oh gosh, you're gonna need a lot of money and a lot of fiber optics to control what's gonna be you know, the infrastructure. And that's still a game that's playing out. I mean, not all areas have fiber, not all areas have the kind of infrastructure that you know, they would want. And, and so, you know, that's, you know, that's going to be played out for decades still. What travels on the infrastructure can be controlled by more of, um, more of your abilities to create a user experience uh, over the Internet yeah. and, and a purposeful experience that solves some kind of problem. And so then we started to say, gosh, there's all kinds of innovations and problems to be solved on, on the what travels on the internet side, and, yeah. and we started spinning off lots of companies that way. So that was kind of my my early my early days, were really in network infrastructure and and software development on the, on the let's build out experiences, and that's probably how I've spent most of my career. I mean, innovation and entrepreneurship have been you know an extension of those things, but most of my career have been spent in those kind of areas. That's amazing. It's just incredible that you really were a pioneer <laughs> for tech, you know, the internet, everything to do with software engineering here in Southern Utah. Um, like here at the very beginning of like, <laughs> I think, I don't think you can be more there at the beginning than when the internet began or like started to take hold, right? And so it's just so um, impressive. You know, if you look at the full context, there were, there were four universities, you know, three of them out of California and the University of Utah that really Kind of started that DARPA network and in the early stages of it, but you know, as you look in kind of the next sequencing of the internet, which was really what transformed our world, that's when that's when I was in that kind of that next sequencing, and and I can't say enough about the role that students played in that. You know, I, I mentioned Aaron Gifford, but there were, there are a number of students that played a big role in the teams that we used to kind of start crafting that, and it was fun to watch their their creativity and their work to, gosh, to learn the skills, to learn the things that needed to be developed to problem solve, and mm -hmm. it was it, it was just fun. And I, you know, I've stayed involved with those teams for you know three or four, three three decades plus, and and found that they they continue to try to do those same things. They've spent their whole careers, mm -hmm. so I spent much of mine, and now you got another generation and. And, and there's, I'm sure, many more generations to come in this technology solution space where you, know, you identify problems, you come in with some technology solutions that kind of create an experience or that you know, solve a problem and then off the races with yet another thing. It's exciting how you mentioned, though, that like you were kind of aware of the environment in northern Utah and maybe some other places at the time, and you came down here and recognized southern Utah could use a lot of this innovation and some, a lot of these things that are happening other places in the United States, right? And um, yeah, just awesome that you really brought us up to speed, or you know, to a large degree, with uh, some of the projects that you carried forward and the people that you worked with. 
Yeah, the, there's some real pioneers that came out of northern Utah that really kind of set the stage for Utah in general. And I, and I think what they did, I mean, the word perfects, the novels, the, the very early stage technology companies, what they did is then they, you know, a couple of them had exits at very big levels. The, then a bunch of employees had capital to start their businesses. And that's, that's kind of launched a whole new virtuous cycle of this investment into innovation and technology. And, and now you see, I don't know how many, you know, tech and engineering companies there are in Utah, but a report I saw within the last year or so, it, it, was, it was above 9,600. And so, I mean, and I think a lot of that virtuous cycle happens because you'll have some pioneers start, you know, and, and then you'll have some exits so that bring in some, some real capital and then that capital then will be deployed on some new problem solves and innovations and yeah. that cycle just continues. And I think that we're in Southern Utah, we're probably about 15 years behind the virtuous cycles of Northern Utah. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that's, that's, and, and I think we're very well connected to them now. Uh, you know, I think 15, 20 years ago, we, we weren't quite as connected. We were kind of doing our own little things down here. We had a number of new startups and technology things happening, but not quite as, as interesting as what was going on up there. And, and then all of a sudden they got interested down here. There started to be some capital influxes a few of the companies locally started to do really, really well. You know, we've got a couple of companies down here now that, you know, are, they're, they're seeking their unicorn status that, you know, everyone talks about so much. But, but I think that's, a, that's part of the healthy cycle. And now we're, we're really part of that where other parts of rural Utah aren't. You know, you can go to, to different regions and they've been completely left out of that play because there wasn't leadership and vision and and a ton of sweat equity and hard work to bring that about. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. So you mentioned so what year did you start InfoWest again? InfoWest. Well, the year I mean the official year is 1994, but the the real startings of it happened in you know late late 80s, early 90s. Gotcha. I mean you, you, we started to to look at gosh what do we need to do to provide dial-up services and some of your users might not even know what that is which which is really funny because no, uh, they've only known a, a, a world of you know broadband kind of speed internet services but anyway we, we started that in in the early 90s uh, and then eventually created a company in 1994. I gotcha so yeah since the 80s then you've really been in the tech space here in southern Utah and now I mean Obviously, you've shifted a lot where you're the dean of the College of Science, Engineering, and Technology. So, I mean, a lot has happened, I guess, in that time span. Uh, do you think that you could kind of just touch on some of the big items that kind of happened between now and then? Right. So, so as, you, as we started to, to look at what the university could do, the, the university is really a, a powerful economic engine mm -hmm. to a region uh, if, if they're doing what I think they should be doing. Yeah. And, and I think... Uh, you know, Dixie and all of its names and Utah Tech University has been an economic engine in, in developing the talent necessary for these companies to do what they're doing. Mm -hmm. You know, if you, th if you think about the, the reasons why tech companies build the buildings that they build and create the environments that they create, what they're trying to do is, is, is create a culture of innovation and those spaces and those environments really lend themselves to creative thinking and you're trying to pull the best thinking out of your talent to solve a problem and to meet market needs mm -hmm. and so that's i mean that's why they do all of that and so the university's role in that is talent development talent mentoring talent uh you know creating the talent that the workforce needs to grow their companies and the innovations and the problems and problems that they solve and those kinds of things and so I think that's, that's a powerful role. You control the talent uh, in large measure. And, and, and what we've seen is, is the university would lead out with some initiatives with talent, like our Code School initiative, or like some, were you ever part of the Code School initiative? Yeah. So I wanna hear about that in just a second when I finish this. But you know, as, we, as we started to sequence out, okay, what do our degrees need to look like? And where do we need to go with 
talent development and how do we need to partner with industry. You know, we started getting feedback from industry on what they wanted in the curriculum and the skill sets so that when our students, you know, went into an internship or took a job, they were ready, you know, ready to run earlier than later. Because you know, <laughs> there, what your your first internship, you're not worth that much. <laughs> if I'm being perfectly candid, for a, a number of months, and and you're costing companies more than you're than you're making creative and intellectual contributions. Yep. And so, as we worked with these companies, and as we developed initiatives that would that would bring more talent in, mm-hmm. as well as well as develop better talent. So more and better talent was really was w- really an intentional activity that we started many decades ago. And industry was fully, you know, I, I can think of Josh Akins, I can think of some of the early, early tech companies that came in and said, yeah, we, we don't have the talent we need to grow. And it's hard to attract them here because we don't have enough companies here that then if they wanna you know, if they want a job with a different company and they've kind of set roots and bought a house and done all those things, then yeah. it, it was challenging. We didn't quite have our infrastructure, you know, a couple of decades ago, and now we have that infrastructure. So it's so we're recruiting top talent. There's in-migration of talent. There's remote worker talent that is here in much, much larger numbers because they love living here in the recreational opportunities and mm-hmm. whether it's family or, or whatever, they, whatever their reasons for choosing. And so that talent part is, is really the role of the university. And you know, when, we, when we first started our degree programs, we had a few limited degrees. And now we have, we have you know, I, I just got the numbers on this from our, our, uh, our STEM outreach coordinator, which coordinates pre-college activities. So kids, young kids, ages eight to 18, involved in programming and engineering and and different kind of STEM outreach activities. In the last 10 years, we've had 55,000 kids in activities that will lead them hopefully into the degrees and the programs that will get them the high pay, high demand jobs. And so that's, the university's got a vertical niche in the pre-programming area that didn't exist until and we started doing little small things three decades ago, but we got really intentional about 10 years ago mm-hmm. where we really wanted to scale that opportunity so most any kid who wanted it could get access to it if they desired it. Mm-hmm. And it still needs to scale more. I mean, if you think about that, you know, you've, you know if, you, if you had 10,000 one year in pre-college activities and, and the school districts at somewhere around 35,000 kids, that means you're saying, you know, what percent, you know, over two thirds aren't gonna get any touches with this in in our pre-college stuff, and are they gonna get touches in other spaces? And and, and the K-12 system does some of that, but there's a lot of it that, I mean, parents want more. There's no question, and kids want more. Mm -hmm. And for them to be intentional about their career paths, they have to start earlier. And so it's, we're still leaving a bunch out is, is what I'm saying. We've, we've done a lot, you know, congratulations us, but really there's a lot, lot more to do. I mean, we're st- we still have lots more sequencing to play out. Yeah. Anyway, I wanna hear about your code school experience. So <laughs> tell us about that. Oh. You've been part of our, our pipeline activities. So Absolutely. kind of talk about your path through the pipeline that's happened. Yeah. Um, so I came home from my mission, or so I served an LDS mission uh, from 2016 to 2018. And I came home um, and talking to my dad and other people, talking to Eric uh, especially, uh, and I was just asking the you know the big question of like what should I do with my life? What should I do with my career? Like what's going to be the thing, right? And from my meetings with Eric and others, right? I I don't know. I like I never really considered like programming tech like a super viable option, right? But um, I think that him and other people like opened my eyes like no this is the future like like this leads to high paying jobs and like and positions where you like you're going to make decisions and like shape the future of our community right 
And I think that was a really eye-opening experience for me. And then, yeah, a few experiences that I had, code school being the big one. Um, I think I did that in 20, the summer of 2017, because I was talking to Eric and I was like, listen, I, like, I need to land an internship. Like I want to like get into, like set myself up really well to get a job after I'm done with college. And he said, you got to get experience and you got to get experience in the things that companies are going to hire for. He said some, I don't know, like, we teach that, or I learned a lot of that at the college just through my classes, um, but Code School was very focused on like, these are the skills and the tools being used in the industry right now, and we're going to build an application using them that, I mean, it wouldn't be industry standard, but it, like it's, a, it's enough that you'd be considered valuable to a company if you knew these skills, right? And that, I think, is huge, <laughs> right? Of like, uh, I don't know, sometimes academics, obviously not, uh, you know, like complaining about them at all because they have their own world and their own priori priorities, right? But <laughs> you're talking to an academic. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but no, I I, th I think that you like you definitely live on both sides really well. Like you are an academic, you recognize the value of education, but you also recognize the value of the right education, right? The education that's going to be profitable soon, quickly, pay off really quickly, right? And I think the code school is perfect for that, right? Like you're with the professors who are teaching the skills that are hireable right now. So talk about, so you went to code school and that's a eight week summer deal. Yeah. Where you're intense and you're, 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 you're learning those industry things. You got relationships with the CEOs of eight or 10 companies, yeah. you started to connect with them. So what happened after that? You went, you got an internship and yes. then you finished your degree. Yes. Okay. So. So I think that there's, that's a critical part of the story. Mm -hmm. You know, if you, if, if you, if you think about what, what I consider the, what, what the smartest students are doing, they're getting two to three year, years of experience in industry while they're getting their degree yeah. because they've got some, you know, critical skill sets that they can make contributions. Mm -hmm. And it's those kids who then get the best offers out of college when they graduate from college because they've already got these years of experience and there's high demand for it and they usually get high pay. And what I've seen is, and, and this is really an interesting thing from, you know, cause some kids are like, I just want to be an entrepreneur and I want to start my own deal and I want to launch off and I get, I'm going to go raise some capital. I'm going to go do this and this. And I've seen a, a number of students, probably 30 or 40 in the last few years who have, who, who have taken a different route than the entrepreneurial route and have taken this skill route that you're talking about and it you know after they've been out of college for about two or three years they get another offer that then gives them stock in the company that they're working for plus a high pay job and then they offer them stock the next year because they're really performing well and all of a sudden they're in a situation where they're you know they're equity investors with their time and talents in a company that's growing and increasing in value, and sometimes they don't. I mean, I've seen students go to companies that you know their stock ended up not worth, being worth anything. Yep. But as, but I've also seen it where you know as they built and and helped grow that company with their skills, all of a sudden they're worth you know half million dollars from their stock and this great high-paying job that's covering their details, and and that's similar to an entrepreneurial experience. I mean, you're, and you didn't have to raise the capital. <laughs> and so, so I see, I see a number of kids go out and start their own where they control the equity, they raise the money, they, they, they run the whole ship and they solve a problem and they grow a company. Yeah. And I, and I've helped a number of students do that. And I've also seen them kind of take this, this other path that's equally as valuable and, and, and probably a lot less stressful because you don't have to raise capital. Exactly. And, and so it, you know, the, the students who kind of, who are intentional about what they want to learn and do and the contributions that they want to make to companies can do very well in this space if they're, if they're playing that. And that's why it's so much fun for me on the university side because I can kind of guide them through those processes and then you just flip a narrative and all of a sudden we're now talking the private sector side yeah. and we can, we can launch some things up in those spaces as well. So it's, it's, it's really a fun combination that I've had the opportunity to, to be involved in both sides yeah uh, at the university absolutely yeah and I'm, I'm glad you asked me about uh, the, the, the code uh, camp thing and everything because yeah I feel like a lot of these opportunities that are the college is offering and providing to students have become invaluable for me and my, a lot of my friends right like I'd say of my close inner circle friends 
there was very few that uh, either didn't graduate with a job and then within the six months, within six months after graduating, weren't making six figures, which is like unheard of, right? In Southern Utah, like with any experience, right? It's like, I don't know, it's just learning a hard skill and getting good at it makes you extremely valuable. And there's a lot you can do with that going into the future. Like if you still want to become an entrepreneur, you have the capital and the salary to, to, you know, run with a few ideas. And if they fail, it's not like the end of the world either. Right. Where it's like, if you have no money, no capital ideas, <laughs> it's like a lot harder to become an entrepreneur. Right. <laughs> yeah. You probably, if you don't have any of that, that's probably a, a, a yeah. kill. Yeah. Which is, always interesting to me when I'm approached by entrepreneurs like so listen I don't know how to do the coding and I don't have any money but I do have this really good idea like I'll take that idea right off your hands as long (laughs) if I'm not signing an NDA right because it's like I don't know having the skills to be able to bring your idea to fruition is uh it's just a it's a big deal right It, it makes it so you can bootstrap instead of having to raise at early stage and it changes the risk scenarios for you and uh, and and some would argue that gosh you need some capital to really do this or that right and I and I agree I mean there's there's situations where you absolutely need to capitalize up and yeah. and and approach it from a much higher level mm-hmm. uh, but some things you can do you know you can bootstrap and grow it I mean I'd say most of my starts are bootstrap grown yeah with very little capital and 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 there's some benefits to doing it that way you know, as I think about the benefits, I mean, you make sure that your team is functioning okay before you dr- drop a whole bunch of capital on it. You make sure yeah. that you get some stickiness to whatever your experience or product or whatever you're developing. Mm-hmm. You know, you make sure you get a, you know, a couple sales and then, okay, now let's, now let's throw some capital on it and, yeah. and accelerate our growth once we've kind of proven, you know, the markets and the stickiness and the team's working together well. and. We're doing what we say we're going to do and when we're supposed to do it. And mm-hmm. you, you kind of get a little bit of that every time you bootstrap. There's some real kind of built-in benefits to bootstrapping that, I, that I've always loved. Yeah. So. On the topic of business um, and education, I had a, you know, a big question for you, which is um, you know, from you, my experience with you, you've obviously had a lot of success in business with tech over your career, right? Um, but it sounds like you also take very seriously like your stewardship kind of of education and like the just the tech environment in Utah in southern Utah like it sounds like you really fa- like feel accountable for that. My question is like when did you kind of decide to make that transition like most people if they were you know even semi successful in business probably wouldn't consider a, a career in education so for you I'm curious like what made you want to do uh, pursue a career in education I guess. Yeah, that's. I, I've had that question a lot of times. They're like, "Why are you still in education?" I've, I, they're, they're curious because because they know that you've, you know, you've had a number of successful private sector ventures, and why do why do you stay education? Doesn't that drive you crazy? Doesn't it? Da, 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 you know, they always they always have a little a sentence at the end of 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 something that that, 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 that they're curious about. But the the answer lies in the in a belief in a belief that talent is what is the most needed thing in industry. And the educational side can have the, as big of influence on that as any side that there is. I mean, yeah. industry, you need to be connected with industry. You need to be partnered with industry as you're speaking from the educational side. Mm-hmm. But the educational side touches, you know, at Utah Tech, what are we at, about 13,000 students, 12,500 to 13,000 students. And wow, that's a lot of talent. Yeah. You know, if you look at you know the largest number of employees at InfoWest, it's probably about a hundred. <laughs> you know, over that thirty-year span. So your impact on the the number of people and the and the talent there, you might impact a hundred people as a company CEO. Yeah. Maybe you know a few more in and out. You know, and people are going to move out over the years. So. It might be three or four hundred over a thirty-year span that you'll impact, yeah. but this is every. I mean, you're talking about tens of thousands of people in a community that that can shape and influence the future of the community mm-hmm. and of all those lives. And so, your ability to have a huge impact on you specifically, 
How do you provide for your family? What skills are you going to develop? That then, and what problems can we solve? What inno innovations can we be involved with? Mm -hmm. And how can we connect to that? Those are all interconnected with the talent question. Yeah. And so inter kind of intersecting the private sector with the university makes it really fun to then have those kinds of impacts. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll go home some days and tell my wife, change that kid's life. And, 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 I'll, and I'll know that I had that kind of an impact, and that's fun. That's a really fun part of staying involved in the educational side, yeah. especially if that kid eventually comes back and says, hey, I got this great idea or innovation. Can we spin off a company? Do you, do you either want to invest or help me do it? Or what, what role? Can you mentor me? Can you? And, I, and all of a sudden, well, that, and, and that might make you some money in the future as well. So there's, yeah. there's some incentives that way. But there's all, but there's the bigger incentives, the more meaningful incentives, of the talent development side and what that means in people's lives, and that's that's really a fun, a fun kind of give back to the whole process, and you get from the process. I mean, the companies that I start need talent, and I have to draw from talent pools, and if I'm being perfectly honest, I have a pretty good idea who the talent are, yeah. and I have a pretty good idea of you know who I'll connect with in certain kinds of environments based on those talent pools. So it, it I mean, that, that's, the, that's the answer is, it's, if you really, it's that belief. And if you really believe that talent's driving all the innovation and the economic growth, and, and that's the engine to all of that, then, then that's gonna lend you to want to stay involved with the biggest impacts on talent development in both the private sector side and the public sector side. Yeah, 100%. The tech companies anywhere, right, rely on the universities and the education in the community to shape the people that are going to build the next big tool for them, right, or the next right. big innovation, right? And, yeah, I think it's awesome that you have taken an active role in uh, raising that generation, you know, of, like, the next innovators, the next developers, the next whatever, right? Like, um, yeah. See, and we've talked about some of the verticals, you know, starting earlier with kids and developing that talent pipeline, you know, the K, you know, 8 to 18 that we've got going on in our STEM outreach. And then you've got the regular bachelor's degrees. Yeah. But what you may not know is we just got funding for three different master's degrees. Nice. So, and, and those master's degrees are going to be targeted at kind of the adult population. So if you think about starting earlier with all the kids, you know, meeting the traditional bachelor level, 18 to 24-year-olds, yeah. and then the 25 and up. See, sometimes the adults get left out of, gosh, why, how come I can't go back and get involved in that? Yeah. And so our, our graduate degree programs are going to target adults who want to pivot or mm -hmm. upskill in their careers so that they can get more involved in what's happening with tech. And so you'll see a software development master's degree. Right. You'll see a UX design, so crafting the user experience, uh, master's degree and then graduate certificates in artificial intelligence and machine learning. And those will be launched in the fall of 2024. I'm very excited. I actually didn't know about this. So. Yeah. <laughs> but, so there's your third verdict. And now we've <laughs> kind of covered a much broader spectrum of yeah. talent development yeah. and understanding how that plays a role in a community. You know, because, you know, I, I have people come back to me all the time. They're like, oh, I got my degree in and they'll give me a category, and, and it's not tech. And I'd really love to get involved. How do I do that? And now we'll have some really clear paths for someone who wants to upskill and pivot and get involved in, in, in those kinds of you know, high, high pay, high demand spaces. For sure. While we're talking about degrees and um, just all the courses, I guess, that people can take, I wanted to ask you, because I, I feel like your insight was very valuable for me when I was starting out. Obviously, there's a lot of different pathways that people can take in their careers and stuff, uh, but I'm curious, what do you think will be like the most sought-after degree in the near future? <laughs> <laughs> you might have me on this one, because <laughs> uh, I've been having new thoughts on this, and I'm, I'm just going to... I'm yeah. just going to talk through my thoughts on this. Please I, do. I haven't, I haven't expressed them publicly at all, but yeah. as I watch as artificial intelligence and generative AI start to encompass our world in a greater degree, mm -hmm. you know, it seems like in November of 2022, chat, GPT kind of 
hit the scene with some publicity. I, I think there was a, a plenty of AI going on because, I mean, I've been going to conferences in that since forever ago. So there's always been plenty going on, but that kind of raised awareness in the in the public's view yeah. and the usability in the public's view of, gosh, how do I use these AI tools in productive ways? Mm-hmm. And I think it's I, I, I think it's like like the days back when we were doing the initial internet starts. Mm-hmm. We're like, gosh, where does this whole internet and mobile and all, where does all this go eventually? Well, I could not imagine what 30 years would have done to my early vision of all this because I, I didn't see where it all went. Mm-hmm. I saw where pieces of it went. Yeah. And, I, and I was an early stage leader in some of those spaces, but who could have imagined the great creative minds that would have solved some of the things that we've seen solved in the last 30 years? Yeah. And I think we're on the cusp of another accelerated technological transformation. And so I think we're accelerating into a new era. So which jobs will be most demanded? Is that how you phrase that? I, I think, I guess, um, the degree, the college degree, probably bachelor's degree, that will be in highest demand in the near future, in your opinion. So highest demanded degree. Well, I think artificial intelligence and me, machine learning will be among that list. I think computer science is going to be among that list. Mm-hmm. I think data science is going to be on the list. I think UX design is going to be on that list. Um, and, and I don't know which one wins because I, I had this conversation with a number of developers the other day and these are, these are high end developers working on some really, really cool projects. And, and one of them said, I don't know if I'd get a degree in software development or computer science now because look what's happening with AI. I mean, some of the things that I, you know, used to think were valuable skill sets, I can knock out in short order. With, a, with an appropriate generative AI prompt. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I'm like, yep, you're right. But, it, but, but the argument against that is, is aren't we always gonna need original creative problem solvers in the space that, that know what to prompt, that know what to, so the skills, I think we're gonna have to adapt our skills. We're gonna have to be um, computer science, software engineering, and AR, AI developers. I think we're gonna to have to be more well-rounded across maybe disciplines that we used to not be. Yeah. And, and so maybe the degrees will change a little bit so that every degree has a, a, an, has a certificate in AI because it'll make you more productive. Yeah. Or something along those lines. I think we're just gonna to have to roll with it just like we have in the last 30 years. We've, you know, we've, We've had to be pretty proactive in some of the skill training stuff, and I think we're going to have to be uh, adaptive and flexible and intentional yeah. about our learning in the next round. And, and what would I predict? I don't know. I, I would say that there are going to be advancements that make our world a lot better place, and I think there's going to be some advancements that are going to be messy and are going to mess with our world. Uh, I think, you know, with your ability to generate in the video space, in the voice space, in the imagery space, in the narrative and the copy space, your, your abilities to generate now will make us question what is truth yes. and <laughs> what the source is yeah. and how it came about. And I think people are going to try to deceive more using those technologies and make it appear as though certain things, I think, I think, I mean, think how sophisticated a, a phishing attack could become with the appropriate generative AI stuff. And think about, and I start thinking about all the bad side, and I'm like, okay, don't go that route. But, because I, th- I think there's some challenges that, it, that it's gonna absolutely present, and I think there's some, some awesome things that are gonna be developed because of it. They're gonna make our lives that much better. And more more productive and 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 so I think it well but that's really what happened on the internet side if you remember I mean we still have some of the things that are aren't so good about what's happening you know socially there's some challenges Uh, I you could go into all the negatives on the internet side we could spend all day on that but 
but there's also all the positives too. Look how much more productive we are as, as humans. And, and anyway, so I, I think it goes both directions. Every time we come up with a transformative technology that then gets deployed to all of us. Absolutely, yes. I, I completely agree with that. And while we're in this space, I also wanted to ask you, have you seen a shift since, I guess, the, really since the advent of ChatGPT, so November 2022, like you were saying, in education, you know, like the way students are, you know, doing curriculum, the way that, like, curriculum is laid out, the way that faculty responds to students, like, ha- have you seen a shift uh, since the advent of ChatGPT? Oh, absolutely. And I, and I think we're going to have some really fun conversations about this in the future. So if I say something now that becomes obsolete in six months, get used to it (laughs) (laughs) truly yes (laughs) so if this you know if this is accessed six months from now and it it sounds like we're obsolete it there's some there's probably some reality to that because every one of the ai companies that i'm seeing working in these environments is saying oh gosh six months ago we're we're now that's obsolete stuff you need to be using our up-to-dated trained models in this Mm -hmm. and it's moving that fast people are talking about, you know, creatively destroying their version 1.0 to their t- version 2.0 in six month timeframes. So it's hyper, it's, it's accelerated. So if, if I say anything along those lines, on the educational side, I, I think that's a wonderful question. And I really appreciate that because I think some are viewing it from a perspective of fear. And I think some are embracing it and being intentional about it. So those who kind of fear it and wonder and are, and are nervous about it, haven't engaged it, haven't ever written a, you know, a generative prompt, don't have accounts, don't, they, they, may, they may have some opinions that are based on what they've read in the media that you know, it's going to destroy society and it's going to do all of these negative things and yep. kids aren't going to learn anymore. And, and so there's some of that out there. And to be honest with you, I, I've done some negative stuff with it from a from a perspective of all right create this kind of report with these kind of sources with and it made up stuff it lied to me you know and I'm and I'm like oh, okay I get it you gotta you gotta be checking this stuff it's not it's yeah. not perfect right now it's still in the early stages uh, but I've also embraced it in my tech entrepreneurship class mm-hmm. and I've actually created prompts where I can interact with it in ways that make me increasingly productive creative and and provide meaning, more meaningful understanding than I could get prior. Mm-hmm. So it, it, as, I, as I go through, you know, I've got about 18 experiences in that class, and I've created generative AI prompts to engage the activity of ChatGPT and others mm-hmm. to, to enhance that experience. And, and I'll give you some examples. One of the experiences, I had it, um, I, I, I had them initiate a prompt where it looked at their market and their persona within their market and they got to interact with the persona through a question and answer wow. and detailed descriptions of markets and stats and demographics yeah. in a you know 10 to 15 minute sequence that would have taken them hours otherwise. Yeah. And it was just moving them through, you know, I'm doing this kind of a company help me generate a persona for this kind of deal. And, yeah. and, it, and it kind of starts to work you through, gosh, who am I solving this problem for? Mm-hmm. And what are the best solutions? And what are their pre- preferences? And how many of them are there? And how, so all the questions you get with target market demographics and personas can be simulated in those environments. And so yeah. I've got a simulated approach with you know, 15 trillion data points, which, you know, that seems mind boggling in and of itself. Yeah. That the, the then, the, then you can engage a student in ways that are, that are unique, mm-hmm. that I couldn't do six months ago. Yeah. And so I do that with every one of those experiences. I have some kind of generative, I, I usually have them do it outside of class, but every once in a while we'll, we'll talk about it and we'll engage with it in class mm-hmm. so that they know, one, I know exactly what, generative AI can produce and two I want you to use it to your best advantage yeah um, and so I think embracing it being intentional about it from the educational point mm-hmm. is is a smart approach I think there's also approaches where you say I don't want you to use it I want you to use your brain and think 
think through this, yep. process through this, create, you know, create your own stuff, and then let's let's see what some validation could be with that, or let's see what some, you know, so so I think there's multiple approaches that are perfectly appropriate, uh, and I think educational will be transformed over time by many of by many of the opportunities that it presents. Do you have any fear that students will begin graduating university here with maybe like almost a dependence on ChatGPT or generative AI? I could see if this was around maybe when I was going through school, I could see a route that's very easy where it's like, oh, I can kind of have this thing do all my homework and answer all my questions. I guess skim by college, you know? Um, do you think that would happen often or like you see that happening or? So I, so I definitely, definitely believe there's gonna be some students who are gonna look for the path of least resistance. Mm -hmm. uh, they'll get an assignment to write a paper on XYZ and they'll go to generative AI, yeah. or they'll go to ChatGPT or one of the generative AI environments. Here they go with a prompt, uh, they get you know, a three-page paper with this kind of a tone, with this kind of a, yeah. you know, this kind of stuff, and, and I'm done. See, and I think that's the exact opposite approach you should use as a student. As a student, I think your, your disposition should be, I want to learn, and I want to use generative AI to help me learn. Mm -hmm. And if I take that kind of a, a thinking approach to I want to learn, then you're going to be developing yourself as a talented, capable, you know, student who can then deliver and make contributions in the private sector. Yeah. And if you remember, almost all my conversation is, is about developing and nurturing talent. Yeah. And if the student has the, has the disposition that I just need a degree and I can go on and move, and I, I think that's the exact opposite way that you approach your education. And so using generative AI as a, as a, as a source for learning, teach me how to write this code mm -hmm. to do this. Yeah. Generate a function for this and teach me what every part means. Yeah. That's how you use it. Yeah. And if you use it as a, I'm just gonna use it to get something done, to checklist off, to get my grade, uh, you, you missed the point. Yeah, 100%. Um. Yeah, and I agree with everything that you said. I think that those who care about their education, care about developing their own talent, right, won't become dependent on generative AI to do everything that they can do, right? But but you could become dependent on it for your learning. Oh, for sure. So when I want to go learn something new, I mean, all right, there's a new, you know, heaven forbid, another new JavaScript uh, <laughs> uh, platform that allows us, you know, framework that allows us to do something else in a better way. Yeah. Heaven forbid. I mean, how many of those have you learned in the last uh, decade? Exactly. But say a new one comes out and, you know, you want to learn it and you use generative AI to learn it. My learning isn't dependent about, you know, I'm going to go ask the professor about this. Mm -hmm. It's like you got a professor right on your prompt screen. Yeah. And, a, and, and they know 15 trillion data points, which I guarantee <laughs> none of your professors are going to have queued up in their heads. Sure. I mean, it just they, they're, or, or they're, no human being. Yeah, no <laughs> human being. It's not, and I'm not dishing on any no. any of the academics. I'm just saying that wow, we have this new tool yeah. that is now my trainer and one of my one of my sources for really, you know, making me more uh, a better learner, a more productive citizen, a more productive yeah. employee. And I'm going to use it to you know really in the best ways. Mm -hmm. That's powerful. Yeah, that's powerful because now you're like. Ugh. Because I, I think back, you know, a, a few generate, you know, a few decades ago, and the professor controlled a lot of the information, mm -hmm. and that balance of power has shifted yeah. to where it's available to those who want to be intentional about their learning and their work, and and so that opens up the door to a whole bunch of new opportunities. Yeah. And then the, the, you know, the faculty member is facilitating a bunch of that by engaging with them in smart ways and bringing experience. Yeah. You know, some of that key experience to the, to the table as well. Do you see, um, like, do you see people's interest in traditional education through like brick and mortar buildings like colleges and universities declining in the coming years because of Ooh, good question. like online or Actually, generative you're AI? You're going hard <laughs> at me today, aren't you? <laughs> um, you know, I think that the landscape 
of higher education continues to change. I mean, yeah. 30 years ago, you wouldn't have thought that online would be a big deal, and now you've got a huge percentage of students taking their stuff online. Mm-hmm. Uh, 30 years from now, with all the generative uh, technology, it might be three years from now. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to go out. I'm trying to not go out past two or three years on most of my predict- <laughs> predictions, so don't make me forecast that far out. Apparently, we're going to hit the singularity anyway, <laughs> so, so we don't know what's going to happen, right? So. <laughs> right, but, but you go out a couple of years, and you can easily see how if the balance of power has shifted to getting access to this and having such a powerful tool to you, I think more and more people as they see, I I, I don't know that everyone knows how to use it though. So you might have users listening to this and they're like, what the crap are those guys talking about? You know? And if you've never used it, it, this, this might not make a ton of sense to you. And and what I would say is go, go set up an account and start playing with it in any of the environments, whether it's a Google environment, a Microsoft environment, a, yeah. you know, I, any of the environments, go, go play with it and, and, and at least get a little skill with it. There's tons of free pop-up classes at the university. We're doing a free pop-up class on it right now yeah. that students can take, that the community can take and, and to get, because we're, we're like, we got to figure out how to play with this new mm-hmm. deal. And as we get a meaningful understanding with interactions with businesses and community and students, We'll know what better to offer in our graduate certificates in our in our classes. So we're in the learning phases right now, yeah. of how to best deliver these kinds of tools and educational experiences. And I think we're we're out in front of the game a little bit right now, but but we're we're gonna have to stay intentional to stay in that kind of a position. Absolutely. So do I think do I think it'll change? Absolutely. I think it'll change the way people view how they get their education, just like online has, just like mm-hmm. other modalities of you know, educational delivery. Yeah. I, I think we can learn in a lot broader ways than kind of the traditional lecture approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that, you know, that has its, it, its own charms in some ways, um, but there's a lot of ways we can, we can engage in learning. I mean, some of my best learning is, is working on a project with another person who's who we're engaging in it and learning together, and yeah. and all of a sudden, we we both grow up with a new skill set because we engaged in something. So, and that doesn't involve any class, and that doesn't involve. But if I had resources and that, do I see people doing more and more of that? Absolutely. Yeah. For sure. And if it's like, why wouldn't you, right? It's like it's almost like having like a personal mentor there with you all the time, right, to kind of guide you and transition you on your education journey. It's like. I think the tailored experience to like the individual is going to become more and more important into the future, right? Of like, obviously every human being is different. We each have our own unique abilities and our own skill sets. And like having a mentor or a teacher there that recognizes that context of who you are and can teach your abilities, I think will be huge, right? Yeah. And hopefully, yeah. And AI can actually do that. It can kind of sense exactly. where, I mean, it, 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 if you train it in the right ways, and, and I think this is an interesting an interesting problem solve. If you cha- train it in the right ways, it can actually be kind of, it can, it can adapt with your path and help you grow in the areas where you, where you might be weak and, yeah. and reemphasize those areas until you kind of get your competencies up. Gotcha. And so, yeah, that, that, that's a natural usage of that kind of technology for sure. One more question, and I kind of wanted to transition here for a second, Eric, uh, back to business is, um, Imagine that, I mean, you're starting in new ideas and businesses all the time, right? Uh, But if you're like a younger, maybe entrepreneur and you want to get into the tech space and start a business, um, I don't know, like what things do you think, what sort of things would you do and what sort of things would you not do if you were starting a tech business startup in today's Mm -hmm. tech environment? Wonderful question. You know, and I've had this question lots of times from students. Yeah. They they want to do something. I, I would say that it's a high percentage of students who want to do their own startup and want to be their own boss. Uh, a lot of times they don't necessarily want to do all the things that are attached with it, like <laughs> workloads and life balance and, and the challenges that come on. But the, the idea of, gosh, I'd really love to, you know, to do that. I'd like to be my own entrepreneur, yeah. do my own startup. I, I think a lot of students have that thought kind of go through their head. And, and, and so I'm going to, I'm going to kind of create context. Yeah. I believe that our business world is all tech. Okay. So tech now is the foundation of business. Mm-hmm. And, and what, the, what does that say? Well, I would make sure that if you want to play 
in a tech business that you better get some tech skills. So that would be a starting point. Yeah. And, and so if, if I'm gonna be doing business in a tech space, I better have some tech skills. And, and how you go about that, I think there's a thousand different ways. I, I could give you a counsel and advice depending on the conversation that, I, that, we, would, that we would have about that. Yeah. So starting, starting with that context, all businesses are tech businesses. Now that's arguable, but it's also a fun conversation piece that, okay, if I wanna go into tech, what do I need to do? Yeah. So I'd, I'd start by getting some tech skills. And if you don't know where to start, well, do you want to develop user experiences? Do you want to do you want to solve problems? Do you want? There's so many places that you could start. Um, that that I would just say jump in and do something within the tech thinking space. The next thing I do is is I would is I would hone my skills in innovating. And anyone can do that. You don't have to be a programmer to do that. You don't have to be a Innovation is, is, is really a process, and it's a skill you can learn, just like programming or other skills. And, and it starts with you know, figuring out problems, meaningful problems that need to be solved, and, and really understanding that problem at a high, high level. A lot of my students will come to me and say, I got this idea, and I'm like, you've probably had 15 minutes max on this idea. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm thinking, is how meaningful is your understanding? How many people have you talked to? Have you validated your idea? Yeah. Have you? So there's a whole skill set that can go into the innovation and problem solving side. And then there's a whole skill set that goes into the entrepreneurial side. And then there's the whole technical development skill sets that inter interconnect with both of those. Mm -hmm. and, and your role that you play on the technical side could be, you know, you might be a designer crafting a user experience, or you might be the programmer that's building the front end, or you might be the, you know, the full stack developer who's doing the back and the, yeah. the whole deal. And, and so there's a ton of different roles that you can play mm -hmm. in someone wanting to start a tech company. Mm -hmm. And what I would say is figure out where you're gonna make your contributions and where your most valuable contributions can be made. And you know, earlier in our little conversation, you're like, well, people come up and talk to me about an idea and you're like, eh, and you don't have any tech skills or money. And so <laughs> you're like, oh, I don't wanna, you know, what are, what are their contributions? Well, if they've gone through a whole innovation process and they've built out conceptuals and they have a meaningful understanding and they, and they come to Europe with an idea, it's a lot different conversation than, yeah. hey, I got this idea and, uh. Yeah, it's like, you can do it, you can, build the entire thing for me, I'll take the credit, right? Yeah. But yeah, no, if the conversation's like, hey, I've thought this through, like I've considered market fit, everything, the niches, like how this is going to affect users, right? Very different conversation. Exactly, and so <laughs> if, they've, if they've built out, you know, kind of a, a, a specification document that really clarifies all of that, in addition to their kind of their entrepreneurial and innovation plans yeah. and, how they, and how they've kind of structured all that, that's usually you know a few hundred pages, at least a hundred pages of, of think time, and that's a contribution. That's definitely a contribution at that point. Um, that said, lots of devs won't jump on with you unless unless they know you know how to manage that process. And so, without any tech skills, you're probably not going to be able to get anyone to believe your vision. It's it's a hard it, so it's it, it's a hard process, but with some tech skills, you know. And, and some vision skills. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I could probably make four or five phone calls and have some really good talent follow me if I knew which problem I wanted to solve and which play and we'd structured it out and, yeah. and we've, we've gone that process. So you can, you can do it, you just, you, you gotta figure out where you're gonna make your contributions and really step in so that the, you're making meaningful and valuable contributions to the process. And, and I think tech's gotta be part of it. Now you could be the designer and I still think that's tech. You could be the, the programmer, you can be the innovator, the entrepreneur. There's lots of contributions you can make in those processes. Yep. But make sure that you can make meaningful contributions in one of those spaces. It's not just about a five minute idea. Because <laughs> you'll get shut down pretty quick from our tech students because they've been through classes like this. They know processes, they know product build thinking, they know feature set thinking they know they know a ton of stuff and if you don't 
they're going to go, no. Yeah, like what, what value are you adding, right? Yeah. Um, do you think there's any sectors specifically or industries like health or like retail, entertainment, anything that's like ripe for the, ripe for the taking right now? That you that you think could be like? What do you mean for the taking? You mean for new startup ideas? Yeah, just innovation. Oh, I I, I think the innovation that we see in the artificial intelligence space yeah. is probably the first thing that comes to mind. In fact, um, if this is any indication, in one of my tech entrepreneurship classes, I we have current events for the first five minutes of class, mm -hmm. and I don't think I've had. A current a, a class this semester where one of the current events that I brought up wasn't an AI event. So, if you know if frequency is an indicator of what's going on in my mind, mm -hmm. and that's usually presenting as an opportunity, I think that's clearly one of the spaces. But I don't think that's the only space. I think there's there's still lots of opportunities out there. In fact, here's a great example. Um, one of the projects I'm working on at the university is a project called Parks Pass. And the Parks Pass project came about after a number of years of kind of trying some things with uh, the state and national parks. And, and we, we finally got them to believe that, that the current technology that they had, which was called the Iron Ranger, it was an iron pole with a slot at the top and a key lock at the bottom where you put your cash in an envelope, dropped it in, and that's how you paid to do your state park entrance. Mm -hmm. And we, we pitched them on using technology to buy your passes, do it online, track it, yep. capture the data, kind of modernize that whole thinking. And, and, and you know, you, you think about things like that, and, and I don't know how many, I don't know the exact numbers of people that visit the 46 state parks in Utah, but it's a really high number. Oh, yeah. And and I do know the numbers in you know Zion National Park because we help create some of those numbers um, by way of our visioning systems and uh, machine learning systems yeah. that that kind of track users in automated ways. Mm -hmm. And park visitors is a better way to put users in that category. So. <laughs> Park visitors. So the visitor use data is being generated by technology. So we know that there's you know five plus million visitors at Zion, and we know you know what's happening at Yellowstone and a, a number of these national parks where we're doing projects. And and you and you know those those are being developed right now. It's 2023, and those technologies have been around for a long, long time. And so figuring out problems that need to be solved. I think there's an endless list. Yeah. So what's ripe for the solving? It's, it's really an ability to address meaningful problems in, in ways that apply, from my perspective, that apply technology in smart ways that, that answer, the, answer the problem, that, that create the solution to yes. that problem. Okay. And, and, I, and I think it's, I, I don't think there's a, I, I could come up with lots more, let me put it that way, in a short amount of time that could, that, that could dominate the rest of my life in terms of development time. Mm -hmm. And it wouldn't take me very long. So if I can do that, and hundreds, I just think there's, there's just almost an infinite number of problems that still need to be solved. And, and we're creating new problems as we solve the current ones, the current ones with technology. Yeah. And I think that's one of the more interesting things. If you look at what social media is doing, I think we're creating as many social problems that need to be solved and that those companies really should be held accountable for as they solved when they came out with their products. And, they, and they've done some wonderful things, but they've, they've also created problems. So at the same time I solve a problem for a state park or a national park or a company or, a, or, or someone in those spaces, I'm probably creating as many as many problems as I solve because now that technology is going to introduce a whole new set of things that then need to be solved. And so for me, the the endless stream of meaningful problems that need to be solved is is what technology really needs to focus on. Yeah. Um, and it's becoming in some ways more complex because platforms are now dealing with billions of people. And, and environments where you're solving problems or dealing with these scalable numbers that just 
are are mind-boggling in many ways. Yeah, it's 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 a fascinating kind of complex uh, world that we live in, and and so when you when you start solving real problems, you just find that there's more to solve, and it doesn't end. I don't know that it ever ends. Which is the exciting part for it is. entrepreneurs it's and innovators, fun, yeah. right? It's yeah, like there's a, there's always going to be another problem to solve, which is exciting, right? In any and not just another problem, because I, I, I want you to rephrase that. I want you to say there's always going to be a meaningful problem that needs to be solved. Yeah, and I think that meaningfulness is is important. I you know I think the solves for you know, how do we get a product online? Well, I I think those solves are pretty clear, pretty straightforward. Uh, and I think there's lots of lots and lots of companies who know how to solve in those spaces. Yeah. Um, but the more meaningful problems, how do I solve for something that someone else hasn't solved for? I think those are those are the ones that really kind of capture my attention. For sure. Especially when it helps in environments that don't always get the help that they need. So I think those are those are the fun ones. Thank you so much uh, for being on the episode today, Eric. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you and that we've covered a lot of topics and a lot of really good, juicy <laughs> ideas, I, I feel like. Um, yeah, anything that you want to add just before we wrap yeah, up here? just thank you for having me. I appreciate the time that we've spent. I think it's been a wonderful conversation. Absolutely. Uh, thanks. Catch you guys next time.